Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. On this week's show, posting April 17, 2015, we'll be speaking with CIA veteran Jack Devine about the piece he co-authored in the journal's new spring issue on how conventional wisdom can confound coping with the unknown. We'll also point out other top stories in the New World Policy Journal, But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Report's news service. Well, that didn't last long. The nuclear deal with Iran, announced just two weeks ago, could be unraveling. Iranian President Hassan Rouhani says there will not be any final deal. June 30th is the deadline. No final deal unless the U.S. and other world powers lift all sanctions simultaneously. But that's not how President Obama has described the framework agreement. He maintains that sanctions will be lifted gradually as Iran complies with demands to roll back its nuclear program. Then there's the Republican-led Congress, which has muscled the president into allowing congressional oversight of any deal and over any lifting of sanctions. Republicans have said instead of lifting sanctions, in fact, they'd prefer to tighten them if Iran doesn't cooperate. Meantime, cracks in the P-51 itself, with Russia saying it'll lift its ban on selling Iran a new surface-to-air missile system. That decision by Vladimir Putin sparking sharp criticism by both the U.S. and Israel. And speaking of Russia, the U.S. believes but won't say it publicly that Russian hackers were behind a recent cyber attack on the White House. This, as the Pentagon announces plans to create a so-called cyber reserve of forces from both the public and private sector. The reserve could be called on in time of crisis to defend critical infrastructure. This has defense officials look to hire thousands of cyber defense workers now, but warn of big labor shortages. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. I was on the street and everyone started running and screaming uh, away from the World Trade Towers. Um, And then the second one, I just heard a big explosion. It moved everything and it blew our windows out. It was more than chaotic. People were slamming into each other trying to grapple or something to get out of the building. People did not know which way to run. This conflict was begun on the timing and terms of others. It will end in a way and at an hour of our choosing. Fear of the unknown on 9-11-2001 was at least as terrifying for many as the devastation before their eyes. In person, at the suddenly pulverized World Trade Center, or endlessly replayed on TV screens around the world. As later investigations revealed, the Al-Qaeda attack was not so much an unknown threat as an underappreciated one, because of factors that still blind or distract intelligence analysts and, perhaps even more so, the government leaders they serve. These factors include the seductive familiarity of conventional wisdom and the political agendas of those leaders and of some sources on which intelligence professionals often must rely. Also, a woeful lack of creative or should we say destructive imagination as displayed by today's top terrorists. 
Warnings that al-Qaeda planned to strike within the United States, even with hijacked aircraft, dated back to the Clinton administration. Actual extremist attacks were already a sad fact of life in Europe when the world was shocked once more by the Charlie Hebdo massacre in Paris. Such bloody surprises, including the so-called Arab Spring, authoritarian pushbacks that followed in so many places, and the onset of new warfare on the Russia-Ukraine border, will likely plague us for the foreseeable future, according to intelligence veteran Jack Devine, for many of the same reasons. But he says we can do a better job of anticipating and preparing for them. Acting director of CIA operations overseas before he retired, Devine published a memoir last year, Good Hunting, an American Spy Master's Story, and he co-authored the article titled Conventional Wisdom and the Next Unknown in the spring issue of World Policy Journal. I spoke with him earlier. Mr. Devine, welcome to World Policy on Air. Well, it's great to be here, David. Despite your own warnings, you begin your piece by looking through the lens of conventional wisdom at some current known problem areas, starting with the Middle East. You see continuing attacks on U.S. and European interests, but not the spread of an Islamic State caliphate, though we now see ripples of it as far away as Africa. Why not? Well, I think they've actually reached, in, in my mind, a high watermark. Um, you know, I think if we look at the world of ideas, I think that's what trumps over the long haul. Why during the Cold War did America come out or the West come out on top? It's just the end of the day. Uh, the communist ideology just wasn't uh, viable anymore. And I think that's, that's true with the extremism, the extreme distortion of Islam. Uh, in other words, they've generated uh, a fair amount of support. But I don't see that growing in every Arab country becoming a uh, supporter of a caliphate. And uh, frankly, if it became a caliphate, a state, it's so much easier for the U.S. to deal with that with a nation state than it is with a uh, um, uh, an insurgency. So um, my view is that we look a year from now, two years from now, I don't expect Iraq to be part of the caliphate. I don't expect Saudi Arabia to be in it. You know, I frankly see them being pushed back into Syria. and That's a whole other story. So for the time being, you see an effective policy of containment while nature takes its course. Do you see a policy of containment along with diplomacy in relations with Iran for Israel, America, and the rest of the West? Could mutual assured destruction keep the peace today as it did in the Cold War? I think there's a number of questions embedded in that, David. Uh, One, let me just elaborate a tiny bit on containment. This is the strategy of the Cold War. You know, the famous article written by George Keenan in Foreign Affairs in 47 or 48, if I remember, talking about the way to deal with the spread of communism was to contain it, block it, and so on. And I don't think we have an articulated strategy today. I mean, it's not articulated. But if I stand back, what it looks to me, it uh, looks to me as if we are practicing a form of containment. In other words, try and keep uh, the... the um, uh, the ISIS uh, in check, um, try and keep Iran from from spreading. In other words, there's a a containment. We're not going to go in to a direct confrontation. That's sort of where we are. But there's a long spectrum of long containment, and I don't think maybe I should have been clearer on this. And that is you can have hard containment like uh, Harry Truman, 
uh, or you can have what I'm looking at now, sort of a softer containment, particularly if we have a leap ahead to Ukraine. So I think it's, I'm not criticizing the strategy. I, I think this is about what you have to do is try and contain it. There's no, you know, let's just put the troops back in Iraq and we'll fix it all. That that we've seen where that takes us. But I do think it could be uh, uh, more forceful in certain places. Uh, going to Iran, uh, um, again, I think what we're looking at here is a way where the Obama administration is trying to bring the Iranians to a point where they'll agree to an acceptable uh, a nuclear uh, uh, stand down. Now, what's acceptable is going to be you know, hard to establish, particularly with the Congress, so uh, I'm not optimistic about the outcome, but their effort is to contain it. If we don't get an agreement, what's the alternative? Then the Iranians march forward with a nuclear weapon, and where does that, that leave us? Is that acceptable, or do we have to go and take out those facilities? So I think they're trying to contain this thing, trying to reduce the risk, uh, and the alternatives are not very good. In Asia, you say it's hard to imagine increasingly powerful and aggressive China actually using military force to achieve its regional goals, uh, precisely because of its remarkably successful role in the international economic web. But do you worry about accidents and a, a cultural imperative to save face? Well, one of the things about uh, going back to the article, I talked about where I think analysts are going to come down. And basically, it's steady as she goes, uh, maintenance, containment. And that is probably where I would come down if I were an analyst. But what I also say is one of those things is flat wrong. I can't tell you which one it is because of the unexpected of the surprise or the accident, as you said, David. So where is that where is that going to happen? And that's hard to hard to forecast. But I do have some thoughts on that. But going to China specifically, I think the thing that, that we all realize is that our economies are so intertwined that uh, you know we can't afford a, a, a cold war with China or a confrontation with them. They certainly can't. So we're going we're going to find accommodation on both sides. However. When you have a, a highly productive economy, even though the Chinese are starting to slow down and not in an insignificant way, uh, part of your budget is going to go to increasing your military might. So the Chinese are doing that. They're doing it with their Navy. But there's a fascinating article I read in the New York Times this morning. You know, we have the most incredible uh, naval ship being built up in Maine. I mean, there's no, no Navy in the world can even get close to ours. Uh, so, you know, I'm not too worried about them exercising muscle and pushing our Navy out of the, out of Asia. It's, it's just, uh, the math doesn't, doesn't get you there. Uh, but could you have an accident on those islands and it get out of hand? Uh, that's something that I think we, we need to worry about, but that's why we have intelligence services. And that's why we have diplomatic service and, and why people are paid the policy arena is to anticipate and deal with these crises. So uh, that could be a, that could be a flashpoint. Uh, my instinct is that won't be the flashpoint, but it has to be considered as a possibility. Talk about some of the key factors that you uh, note uh, that can upset conventional wisdom. First, economic crisis. Yeah, I, I, mean, uh, I think almost uh, all turmoil uh, has its root in 
economic decline. And then uh, when everything is going well and the economy is marching, uh, you do not you tend to have far less disruption at, uh, internally. Um, and the thing we have to uh, be cognizant of today is the world economies is um, uh, weakening. I think I would say that and the one bright spot is the United States uh, with oil prices uh, dropping. This is uh, this is going to put pressure on those countries that rely heavily on on oil production for their uh, economy. Take Russia, it's over 50% of its GDP is from oil production. So as their economic crisis deepens and is prolonged, you know, uh, you would think that uh, Russia would be undergoing increasing internal political pressures and particularly uh, uh, undermining the stability of Putin. I would say the same thing is true in Iran. I mean, they're already suffering from sanctions. The combination of economic sanctions and and uh, economic compl- uh, decline based on realities such as natural resources and oil um, come together to create uh, unrest. Now, the other thing that I add, when I say where is the surprise going to come from, I would say it's a country where the economic uh, pressures are there, political unrest uh, starts to unfold. And this is where social media kicks in. I think uh, I noted something you had written earlier, David, that, um, that said, you know, social networks can basically take down things, but then what happens? And that's very true. Social networks are, we saw in Egypt, uh, were able to, you know, the Arab Spring was all about bringing things down, but it wasn't able to build anything. So in a world that is economically uh, un- uh, there's an economic unrest, and you have autocratic governments, and you kick in social media. That's probably the mixture for the next unknown. And I can't tell you which one of uh, of our countries uh, around the world will face that, but uh, certainly Iran and Russia would be two places that one would want to keep a close eye on. You write about the danger of relying on exile sources with their own agenda, as happened on Iraq in the Bush administration. But some say it was at least as much a case of top Bush officials choosing to rely on sources most sympathetic to their agenda. What's your view? Well, they're not necessarily exclusive. Um, You know, uh, I was around Washington a long time. Um, You know, we have this, uh, there's a knack where our, uh, almost all of us in a way, when we reach out across the world and you look for people to talk to and understand the country, you're hoping or not you end up with the person that's uh, a foreign national in a foreign country who was educated in the United States. They speak fluent English, they understand the American culture, but we, we rarely step back and say, yeah, but this individual is an exception. He's not really representative of the local culture. And it's, so it's almost a natural habit, a natural trap. So when people come to Washington, if they don't speak English and they have translators and the, you know, it's, they don't, they don't penetrate the Congress. They don't penetrate the, the various departments. So uh, to some degree, it's just a process. It doesn't matter whether they're Republican or Democrat. It's just the, the way it is. And, um, you know, people do want to hear what other people, uh, I mean, people want to hear 
said what they would like to think is the reality. So they get people to do that and tend to get more airing. That's why I believe the intelligence community is so important. And that is their job. You know, when you walk in the CIA, the mantra over the door is, or on the side wall to be more precise, know the truth, it'll set you free. That's its sole purpose. Just get the facts. Forget, you know, forget what you would like to think or don't want to think or where you come from. Just get the facts and put it before the policymakers so they can make the cold, cool cut decision. And the intelligence community has to be sensitive to the same traps that I just mentioned a minute ago, to which all of us are subject. How much more difficult is that kind of borrowing into a culture, another country, uh, in today's world of ethnic and tribal militias and and really blood-curdling Islamic extremism than it was during the Cold War, when it was uh, largely a matter of uh, Westerners versus Westerners, spy versus spy, as the old Mad Magazine used to put it. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't. I would say there's a quantum difference in the difficulty. That doesn't mean it was easy by any stretch of the imagination. The Cold War and getting a a fix on the policies and intentions of of the Soviet Union uh, or China, for that matter. Um, but we could meet. We could find. Uh, the people we were targeting, we could intermingle uh, with them, if you would. Um, now, if you're talking about insurgents and people living up in the hills in places that are far removed from you know, the nearest capital, uh, it's very hard for an American to have the type of interaction that you would need during the Cold War. What we used, however, uh, and the... the Activity I was involved in Afghanistan that get the Russians out. You often use surrogates. In other words, you find what we would call in the trade a principal agent. You would find a, a local who had great reach, and you would manage that person, and he in turn would have assets that could go into those godforsaken places. So that's a harder proposition, but it was done extensively during the Cold War, and. Uh, I'm sure it's being done today. It's just much, much harder. And I tip my hat to everybody that's working uh, working on these accounts. Now, technology is helping, on the other hand. And uh, uh, it's revolutionizing the intelligence world. But to a significant degree, we hear some of these terrorist leaders are uh, forsaking technology, uh, communicating only in person to avoid the kind of snooping uh, that the NSA and other intelligence uh, technology services are so good at? Um, not to dwell too much on uh, pre precision here, but if you just take the drones for a moment, uh, uh, they have they've wiped out three-fourths of the outside of leadership. And you can't, you know, you're sitting, you're driving a truck down the road and you're a, you're a terrorist. You no longer have the comfort you did pre-9-11. Um, and how that is done. Uh, in other words, it's not just intercepting uh, uh, your radio. There's just a very complex world of technology that's brought to bear on uh, how targets are identified. It's a, a new art form. So uh, the proof of the pudding is in the destruction that has befallen on the, the terrorist. And I would say after 9-11, which you graphically described at the beginning, you know, the moment 
the moment afterwards, it was how do we deal with this in this asymmetrical world? How do we deal with terrorists? How, how can we deal with, deal with it? Well, just again, sticking with just the drone dimension, uh, in my view, that sort of evened out the balance of the asymmetrical, the asymmetrical dimension to it. You can destroy these elements, and you can do that using uh, lethal technology. You've talked about working with surrogates, and you write about uh, the way we should be more uh, burrowed into opposition groups, uh, power groups that, that might uh, destabilize uh, a government or, or might be in a position to exploit a destabilized government. What's your reaction to the way the U.S. now is sort of standing back from a key front in the battle against the Islamic State uh, because they see Iran-backed Shia militias waging a, a wider war of, rega- of revenge against Iraqi Sunnis. I mean, there's a there's a danger in getting too close to some of these groups that are in play. Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is a Solomon call. Um, part of it would be, and not to belabor, you know, history, but when uh, when uh, when you encourage the downfall of something, and this is my concern about the unknown, unless you have the infrastructure and some understanding of what's going to happen afterwards, you know, you pray for stability. Um, now, today, what we have is we have an absolutely, absolutely chaotic situation in the Middle East, um, and uh, you're damned if you do or damned if you don't in the case of Iraq today. Um, I would be the big winner from the uh, our efforts in Iraq seems to have been Iran. Um, they have uh, maximized, not maximized, they're in the process of maximizing their influence in Iraq these days. And uh, we, sure as, uh, we surely don't want to be seen on either the Shia or Sunni side in the Middle East. Just, and if you had the sun come down, you're better off on the Sunni side than the Shias because there's so few of them that are our friends. In the case of the Sunnis, we have a fair number of allies. So it's a, it's a terrible dilemma, um, and we can't rewrite what we might have done or might not have done. Um, my my off-the-cuff remark would be we should be supporting the Sunni uh, tribes in the, uh, in the uh, uh, Kurds of Kurdistan and uh, and uh, hoping that we can drive ISIS back into Syria and to somehow cut a deal in Iraq. But uh, I'm not optimistic. If you, I've been writing for several years now on my my view that uh, the outcomes of both Iraq and Afghanistan are probably going to be uh, disappointing to us. And moving to uh, Europe, uh, to what degree do you think U.S. involvement with pro-Western political forces in Kiev was a a significant factor in riling up pro-Russian Ukrainians and their supporters in Moscow, another case of unintended consequences? Well, I mean, I think, you know, if I were to take a hard look at uh, Putin and uh, and the situation in Ukraine, there was no way that Putin was going to let the Crimea and the Ukraine go into NATO. I mean, it didn't matter whether we were riling up or not riling up. He was, uh, this was considered his home court and it wasn't going, he wasn't going to go unchecked on that. Uh, I think we would have been well advised to have recognized that 
to have taken, uh, you know, uh, and jumped in with uh, more rigorously with both economic support and, frankly, uh, military and covert support to check it. And uh, that's been slow in coming. And uh, during that interim, I think uh, Putin has gotten pretty much what he wants, which is a standoff, which keeps the western part of Ukraine uh, in check. And he has uh, control over the Crimea and the, much of the eastern part. So uh, I think he's pretty much gotten what he wants out of this. And he's, he'll keep uh, the western part out of NATO in the meantime. Some say as long as Putin can keep a healthy share of, in effect, diminishing revenues directed to the military and the elites, he can hold power against popular protest. You say we should not ignore the possibility his army would rebel against mowing down too many rebels. Talk about that. Well, first of all, I want to be real clear. Putin looks fairly stable to me. So those that are optimistic about uh, that change should... Uh, should be uh, conservative in their their expectations. Um, the problem with an autocratic system is, uh, and you can be popular with, we know this from our own situations where we've gone in, and in the case of Iraq, we went in and uh, President Bush's popularity rocketed up. Well, so does Putin when he goes into the Crimea and he beats the nationalist drum. But as the economic costs increase, and the sanctions are going to be loosened. Uh, and oil prices look to me like they're staying down for the, for the foreseeable future. Maybe not as low as they are today, but low enough to keep pressure on them. But that's a long, long walk to uh, you know a military uprising. But what can happen is you can have a, the spontaneous demonstrations that happened in in Egypt, and then. The, you're then stepping into the unknown, and uh, and that's why I put I keep Russia on that, and I'm not and I'm not advocating that we encourage a uh, the demise of the Russian government because who knows what lies behind that? It may be something less even less uh, friendly to the West. So unless you know what's coming behind, I would be more tempered in what we're trying to do. I'm just in, in the article. I'm just underscoring. That autocratic governments and economic crises uh, are very vulnerable to uh, social networking. What are some of the other steps you think the United States can take to maximize intelligence and preparation uh, for a world of growing complexity and technology with at least as many unknowns as ever? Yeah. Well, there's two things. One in the book, Good Hunting. I, the book is not only a memoir of the covert action types of activities I was involved in. But it's an advocacy for it, which is a rather unique place to be. It's counterintuitive, but most CIA folks really don't want to be involved in covert action. They'd rather uh, they join CIA to be spy masters and uh, not action folks. So uh, what I believe in this world, there's a space before we put troops on the ground. We're working covertly with indigenous groups, if they have a common interest, not necessarily they want to be democ uh, uh, Democrats, but do they, uh, do they have a common objective? And uh, we ought to be uh, very aggressive in, in promoting that uh, wherever we see 
uh, crisis around the world before we move to military uh, solutions. On the technology side, I noticed something that's maybe a little bit like inside baseball for some of your listeners, but uh, the new the director of CIA is creating a fifth directorate, a directorate for cyber. Um, and you would say, well, that's just an administrative thing. But when CIA was formed, it had an operational directorate, that's where the spying takes place, and it had an analytical one. And then when the, uh, the U-2 and satellites became powerful tools of intelligence, they created a science and technology directorate. And there hasn't been another one created since then. They do have an administrative one as well. To create a new directorate is really indicative of just how big cyber is going to play in the intelligence world. I'm not talking about just hacking. I'm talking about how do you integrate all of that information from targeting to uh, anticipating uh, getting in front of the unknown, if you will. So I think the world of cyber, you know, I'm going to, we're going to look at it, what is axiomatic here, uh, growth. It'll be in the cyber intelligence arena. Mr. Devine, thank you. Well, thank you, Dave. It's always a pleasure. Former acting director of CIA operations overseas, Jack Devine is now president of the Arkin Group consulting firm with whose senior director, Amanda Mattingly, he wrote Conventional Wisdom and the Next Unknown for the spring issue of World Policy Journal. His 2014 memoir is Good Hunting, an America's Spymaster Story. Also featured in the new spring 2015 issue of World Policy Journal, you'll find articles on intelligence failures leading to the Mumbai terror attacks, on the future of Islam and Islam in our future, and on AIDS in the Arab Spring. Plus, tune into next week's podcast as we talk with British journalist and author Nicholas Jubber about his new World Policy Journal book, Abandoned, Life from Mali's Nomads in the Wake of War. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor-publisher David Andelman, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, Online news editor and podcast producer, Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.